1: Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com Let's get this dinner party started
2: Today on Truth and Movies Hail to the King Stephen King that is It's a Pet Cemetery special We're exhuming Mary Lambert's first 1989 adaptation Sometimes is Before tackling the new reanimated take on the horror novel from directors Kevin Kolsch and Dennis Vidmeyer.
3: There's a place rage deep in the woods.
2: But that's not all. We're also reviewing director Jacques odiar's English language debut, The Sisters Brothers.
3: This is about slapping each other in public. After I slap you, you slap me back, Raven
2: And hearing from director Chris Butler of Stop Motion Animation Star Wars Leica about his new project, Missing Link. All coming up in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Yes, it's Michael Leader here sitting in the host chair, sitting across this week from a an absolute masterclass of of horror critics here. We have Doctor Anton Battelle. Hello. Welcome Anton. <laughs> and Elna Lazic. Hello. We're going to be talking about both versions of Pet Cemetery. Yes, this week we have buried Film Club (laughs) earlier on in the podcast to see whether it'll come back up and bite us. But first, we have some correspondence regarding a previous film we discussed on the podcast. This is from George... I just caught up with Truth and Movies episode 87 from January in which you ask whatever happened to Spider from Coronation Street, having just watched him Twenty Four Hour party people for Film Club. Forgive me if this mystery has been solved in subsequent episodes that I'm yet to catch up on and I'm not sure if it's still a regular gig. But I can tell you that I took part in a pub quiz hosted by him a few years ago at a pub on Upper Street. Well... <laughs> From Carnation Street to Upper Street, how the mighty have fallen. I don't know if either of you know Carnation Street Spider. I mean, we have an Australian and a French contributor no what it is. this week. <laughs> anyway, if you find yourself doing a pub <laughs> quiz up in Upper Street and you see Spider, let us know. Tell him about truth and movies, and the mystery can go deeper. But now we should crack on with our Stephen King special for Pet Cemetery. So we're going to start with Mary Lambert's 1989 adaptation here, the story of Dr. Lewis Creed and his wife Rachel, who move to rural Maine with their two children. When tragedy strikes, the family, an ancient burial ground not far from their new home, offers a diabolical opportunity to be reunited with the dead. This first adaptation was directed by Mary Lambert, a music video veteran who directed Material Girl, amongst others. Here's Fred Gwynne as Judd Crandall, the kindly old neighbour who knows the secrets of the
1: Pet cemetery. Lewis, sometimes dead is better The Indians knew that They stopped using that burial ground And the ground went sour Don't think about doing it, Lewis The place gets holier But the place is evil Sometimes dead is
2: better so I know that's a cut-down version of, I think, the trailer, but having the mm-hmm. tagline twice, sometimes dead is better, is really over-egging it a little well, bit. No? In the
4: film, I, I rewatched it yesterday, it's uh, within one scene, I think he says it three times. He says, sometimes dead is better. That's they why want- he always says better, like, better. It gets funny every time he says it, so he says it three times in the same scene.
2: They really so want he you really, to like, remember yeah. this.
4: And obviously it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Or was there would be no film that he doesn't listen to his advice. So,
2: so of course we're talking about Pet Cemetery here in both its cinematic versions. But first, let's talk a little bit about the the book, Eleanor. You, you've read the book, right? Yes,
4: it's the only Stephen King I've read, but it's it was. Um, I'm going to read more because <laughs> it was so amazing. Um, it's interesting because actually, um, it, it's a very sad book. Obviously, you would think maybe I would be very crass, and because it's about you know someone losing their child and I like, but actually, it's it's very very depressing and very. Creepy and very violent, and almost he reaches this sort of like um, hysterical pitch of grief that's like incredible to see on the page, but even to imagine, and then to see on screen. I guess that's a, a matter of translation for the directors to do. Like, there's so much they can do with this just uh, this insane sadness that seizes the characters. But I was reading about her this novel, and apparently uh, Stephen King wrote it early on in his career, and then he made his wife read it and some friends, and they all said it was too dark and he shouldn't publish it. And, um, and he said, yeah, I mean, because it's a kind of a novel about how there's no hope and everything. It's just a downward spiral into despair, and that's not really, and he says himself, that's not really what I believe in. So he was not going to publish it, but then he eventually uh, submitted for, to his editor for money, and it was published. So uh-huh. he only he only did it eventually for, like, the money. But, um, yeah, I mean, apparently he even says himself that it's uh, the only one he's written that really scares him. And, mm-hmm. I mean, I haven't read his others, but it was very, very scary.
2: It's not like all of his other books are laugh riots, though, right?
4: No, but, like, there's always... I mean, even in this one, there are touches of humour, like, the just really weird things that people do. Like, everyone... I mean, I don't know about his other ones, but I've seen mm-hmm. all the films pretty much. And... Um, they always do things that are like slightly ridiculous, or so like yeah. you, you know they think that no one sees them, but you, but we see them. I think that's what Stephen King is really good at. It's like to show us how like sort of weak and pathetic we can be sometimes, mm-hmm. and like and you know because we want things, and and we're supposed to be these grown-up adults, and then we have all these like childish desires, and so that can be really funny, but also obviously. Easily become really sad and like yeah. <laughs> go into violence, and I think he's really an expert at that. And there are loads of scenes in uh, in the book that are like this, and it's so it's like a wild ride to read. It's like you go from like scenes where like what the hell is going on? This is ah. insane and like really funny, and then stuff that's just really horrible and you can't even imagine, and, and stuff that's really sad. Well,
2: maybe that question of tone and mm. humor, in particular dark humor, is something we might come back to and talk about in the mm-hmm. films. Anton, so Mary Lambert by the mid-late mid 80s gets this project at a time where lots of Stephen King films are being made and then we're presented with this film how should we approach this movie now it's, it's pitched by some people as a lost horror classic i like the film but mm. i'm not i wouldn't say i'm its greatest fans. i think it
5: has some very good things about it which are primarily its story its story has a real mythic quality but i think there are some things in the execution of that story on screen that don't really work very well, at least for me. I'm mean, In particular, the casting of Lewis and Rachel, that is the actors, let me see if I can get their names right, uh, Dale Midkiff as Lewis Creed and Denise Crosby as mm-hmm. his wife, Rachel. I find that they're very bland and plain and mm-hmm. they don't really ever appear to have any chemistry between them. And the transition from them leading a normal domestic life full of hope of a new future to losing everything and suffering this incredible grief actually doesn't really register in the film very strongly. (laughs) They remain as bland. Um, In fact, the signal of the beginning of Lewis's creed is what I think... Maybe in the late 80s this wasn't such a crime, but I think now it really would be regarded as a crime. The signal of his transition to grief is him giving a kind of Luke Skywalker-like, no! I know, it's so good! <laughs> um, which um, is really ridiculous. So um So I found that their chemistry fails to carry what really is a very good story along. Mm. And if you're going to take the emotions of the film seriously... You need to believe in them as characters, and I just, I just never did. And I think it's a really fundamental flaw. It also, to me, I know that this is a film that a lot of people will cite as the film that traumatised them in the 80s. They've never yeah, been able yeah. to get rid of the memories of Zelda, for example, Rachel's mm-hmm. sister, who died in a really unpleasant way when Rachel was younger, and Rachel has had to bear the burden of the guilt of that event throughout her mm-hmm. life and has been trying to escape it. And Zelda is presented in flashback in a particularly horrifying way and is in fact played by a male actor. Mm. So these scenes, they're very, there's something very other about them. Watching it now, I don't think it's a very scary film. I realise that scariness is, uh, is a very subjective response to a film and not the most useful criterion for anything. That I'm OK with, because I find most films aren't particularly scary, but I did feel I needed to engage with the characters more than I did. And, it's um, interesting.
2: Watching this film for the first time they're TV actors, yeah. right? Yeah, that's I mean, exactly right. I, I think Dale Midkiff didn't have much of a career outside of this movie, but uh, Denise Crosby is Tasha Yar from The Next Generation, the Star Trek series, and probably not much else beyond that. She and was then,
4: in Deep Impact.
2: Was she indeed? Okay. And then Fred Gwynn, um, maybe not recognizable without his makeup, but he's Herman Munster. So oh, wow. you have the, very much, it feels like a TV movie. And then, It is in this pitch of very varying levels of, uh, I'd say, melodrama and uh, overacting doesn't feel like there's much of a steady hand on the Mm. wheel. Yeah,
4: Sorry, go
5: ahead. I was just going to say that the the casting of Fred Gwynn, though, is a real surprise because Mm -hmm. I think they knew they were taking a a big risk with him Mm -hmm. because he's completely associated with the role of Herman Mm -hmm. Monster. And it's totally a comic role, a comic mm-hmm. sort of vaguely horrorish role and I think he actually elevates the film mm-hmm. more than anyone else in it um, yeah. I think he's the best thing about the film I, I mean it's no surprise that those lines that you quoted from the exit of the film they all come from him because he's mm-hmm. the most compelling character.
2: Just looking at some of the comments we had on Twitter, we had Mark Searby here saying I'd argue it's one of King's best adaptations we also have Lorenzo saying it's the only faithful adaptation. Of course the notion of what is faithful is something that comes time and again when specifically talking about Stephen King's novels. He hates Kubrick's take on The Shining, for example. He wanted to make it himself. This is one of the few that he scripted himself, right? So by definition, does that make it faithful?
4: Mm. Well, um, like that he screwed himself, like, okay, like that's great, I mean, whatever. But I, I do think that there's some things that are in the novel that are... I don't think it's so much a problem with the script. It's just the way the film is is sort of like shot, I guess, and edited and stuff. As you say, the relationship between the parents and the sort of uh, the history together. So like there's this notion in the book and to some degree in this uh, version of the story, in this adaptation, that um, the father, Louis, is considered to be not good enough for his wife by her family in the novel is sort of from his perspective and he's in this constant state of like feeling sorry for himself and feeling mm-hmm. like he's not good enough ever he's not a well man like from the beginning before anything that happens he's already this person who who think he's failing everything he's failing in marriage disappointing his wife his wife is always mad at him in the novel to like to a degree where you would be like oh Stephen King is a big sexist but actually it's kind of uh, when you learn about her history with her sister it kind of like makes more sense um, so there's this degree of him of him this father being this really feeling like he's never good enough and the wife was always mad at him this is some insane weird sexual stuff in the novel are really funny and horrible and like just to show how their relationship is like not healthy Um, and in in this adaptation there's some degree of this uh, with you know with the scene where they go to the funeral and he has this fight with his uh, father and it's horrible mm-hmm. that's in the novel um and but there's much more of this in the novel and you, you get more of a sense of his perspective in the novel that actually helps you follow him when he goes to do these insane things in the pet cemetery and really carries through you with with his pain and with his grief and with his feelings of being not good enough and having failed his wife his children everything and in this film there is some degree of that but it's as you say, it's quite clumsy and it comes and goes and it's kind of confusing. But I still do think that this adaptation is, I guess, yeah, more faithful to the novel because it does this, at least it tries and it does it to some degree, whereas the new one doesn't at all.
2: We'll we'll get to that. Uh, You Mm. you did a ranking of most of Mm. King's films, uh, film adaptations. (laughs) Where did this one come for you?
4: Um, I don't remember the number, but it was quite high because it's uh, sort of a favourite in
2: my house yeah, it's thinking about king adaptations there is the gold standard maybe the top five or six that i don't know most mainstream film fans would say that it's the shining carry mm-hmm. shawshank redemption green mile Maybe The Mist is the most recent addition to that. Mm. But then underneath the crust, Mm -hmm. there are sometimes the slightly shonky, slightly strange adaptations that could be quite exciting. And maybe this is one of them.
4: Yeah, I feel like this is almost um, in the sense of like hysterical sadness and violence and horrible. It's quite similar to Christine. Mm -hmm. And I wish it was as good as Christine. I think Christine is a masterpiece. But yeah, this is the sort of same sense of like it's really horrible but also like it really moving and really touches you on like some senses of weaknesses and I wish it was directed like Christine because I think uh, is it Carpenter right? Yeah, uh, say, yeah, He's got this real sense for like the extremes and like you know the the king things like the the close-ups that go like this on like someone saying sometimes that is better mm-hmm. like this is perfect and it would have been perfect with John Carpenter at the helm but I still think this movie gets really close to all yeah. of that
2: I do think there's a really great Toddler performance. Oh yeah, the, the actor that plays the young lad, who I think he's like two and a half or something. <laughs> like the, the film he's really legitimately terrifying. And there's an extreme close up of him getting, and it's a lethal injection to the neck. Yes. <laughs> and it's like the actual like saddest most <laughs> tender thing in, in amongst this really ridiculous film. Yeah. Um, Anton, is there anything finally to highlight about this film that we should take from this film? This is a little bit of a long story, but not too much of a
5: long no, story. Um, when Stephen King's The Shining, Mm -hmm. written in 1977, was adapted by Stanley Kubrick. There's a famous sequence in the novel where the chef, Dick Halloran, who's Mm -hmm. on holiday in Florida, receives a kind of psychic signal that something is wrong. And he returns cross-country to Colorado at great effort and actually contributes to saving the family. Mm -hmm. And in Kubrick's version of this story, rather famously, Dick Halloran goes through all these motions. He receives the signal. He goes through the arduous process of returning through snow and sleet and all kinds of horrific climactic conditions, finally makes it to the Overlook Hotel, steps in and receives an axe to the chest and is dead and cannot help the family. And Stephen King famously has disowned Kubrick's adaptation of The Shining and really, really disliked the changes that were made to his novel. And I think this scene is absolutely key to that. It was just such a betrayal of Mm. what the novel was about. But, of course, that means that it's a real coup for cinema. I mean, I think it's one of the best decisions that Kubrick made in adapting because it means that the audience that is familiar with King's novel and has come to this film through King's novel is suddenly left gasping, not knowing what's going to come next. Mm. And, I mean, in a sense, there's a scene in Pet Sematary that is almost like a response it's like a dialectic mm. with this dynamic because Rachel has to travel cross-country after receiving a psychic message mm. to return to her home to rescue her family, which is in peril. And, in fact, the film stays very true to the novel, to mm. King's novel, because King did the adaptation himself. This time he's taking his property back. Mm. It's his now. <laughs> but, of course, what happens to her is the same as what happens to Halloran in, yeah. in Kubrick's film. Mm-hmm. And it could be argued that the remake of Pet Cemetery is doing a Kubrick to the original material and to the original adaptation of Pet Sematary because it's, again... Leading us down a path with which we're quite familiar from having read the novel or having Mm. seen the film and then suddenly it veers off in a different direction
2: and we're left not quite knowing where it's going to go. I think that's the perfect point to maybe move on to the new version and maybe to just put a little spoiler warning on here. There are certain things that are in the trailers that people have already called out saying that's a spoiler for this new version. Maybe we'll touch on things here that people may not want to know Mm. before going into the film blind. But let's just go ahead and talk about the new version. This is Jason Clark and Amy Simons as the creeds and the great John Lithgow goes full old codger as, as uh, Judd Crandall. Uh, let's hear a clip. What's going on?
3: I wasn't ready to say goodbye to
2: her. You're scaring me. Just tell me what you're talking about. It's my fault she died. I had to bring her back.
3: There's a place, rage deep in the woods, beyond the pet cemetery. It brings things back.
1: Are you happy, mommy? (laughs)
5: Fuck you, dog. She
2: doesn't
1: want me here.
2: No, no no mommy just needs time
1: it's okay i don't want her here either
2: so anton you mentioned this the way that this film is playing almost in dialogue with the other adaptation or with expectations of the novel how can we touch on this in the most sort of spoiler light way um just to say there are surprises i'm quite
5: happy not to talk about the details <laughs> yeah, um, it's not I, just, I don't think it's a problem in fact i think the trailer which I did not watch. I understand gives away almost yeah. all of the twists. It does. Mm-hmm. I watched it afterwards, and um, I was really surprised. Mm-hmm. No, it's quite easy to avoid specifics while yeah. talking in <laughs> generalities. There are mm. surprises in this, and in many ways, it is a very different film. It has the same root myth, but the difference between the pet cemetery from 1989 and this pet cemetery is something like. The difference between Tim Burton's Batman, also 1989, I think, yeah. and Nolan's Batman in that Lambert's film is kind of grotesque, gothic. It's got a very Burton-esque feel to mm-hmm. it. The sets are over-designed. The Pet mm-hmm. Cemetery itself you can see is a set and it's wonderfully stylized. I don't mean that as a criticism. Mm-hmm. I think it's fantastic, yeah. but it's really designed, you know, the hell is designed out of it. Whereas this is dark... And gritty and dirty. Mm. Um, everything is grey. It has a much more serious tone to mm. it.
2: Yeah, so much of that ridiculousness or the the, the boiling over of dark humour that we mentioned—that's mm. uh, that's gone from this film.
4: Yeah, I think that's a big problem because um, if you're gonna—that uh, sounds like a big statement—but if you're going to adapt Stephen King, it feels. I'm sure he's written some more serious, less um, grotesque, exaggerated novels, but this one is is just so. It's not about realistic things at all. It's about what if uh, you were so sad that you, you did something so horrible, even though you knew you shouldn't do it because nothing good will ever come of it. I mean, it makes no sense to do this, but it makes sense if you're grieving. And this film tries to make that in sort of a realistic, serious register, and it just doesn't really work. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just it doesn't flow from one. Even though those individual scenes might be quite... They are really... Quite tense. I was mm-hmm. quite uh, pleased with the vi- Please, the violence. Please, the, vi- the, mm-hmm. the treatment of like the horror of uh, the individual scenes like, uh, really some amazing jump scares. I don't mean that in a demeaning way, I think jump scares mm-hmm. are. What, I mean if you do it well it's great but it doesn't really flow really well from one scene to the other because you don't really understand why anyone's doing anything because it's so serious mm-hmm. and I think as you said the um, sets in the Mary Lambert's adaptation are really stylized and that's part of like the sort of language of the film it's like a, a sort of uh, imagination like a, a dream like a, an exaggeration of reality it's like a fantasy register and this is trying to be more in a realistic register and it, it just yeah. doesn't gel for me it's just it's very it, and my screening people were laughing and weren't supposed to
2: interesting there's no one laughing at the screen now is that but Mm. this adaptation feels to me very much like a post it stephen king adaptation so the posters have that strap line which is from the creator of it or from the mind who brought you it as if you can't (laughs) just say stephen king (laughs) but also what that adaptation of it last year did was it seemed to be a thrill ride really just inserting as much tension suspense jump scares kills and so mm. on and that's what this feels like it feels like it never lets up yep. it introduces much of the you, know, you mentioned the spectre of the dead sister and so on it introduces some of that stuff very strongly very early in mm. the film so they're always on edge and it comes across as a film that only plays in one register Yeah, really and Anton you mentioned the sense that this is doing a Kubrick could you expand on that a little bit maybe
5: I'm going to be very careful because I don't mm-hmm. want to spoil but
2: if you go into this having
5: seen Pet Cemetery from 1989 there are obvious sequences that are the same mm. they they're clearly heading in the same direction and you know that something bad is going to come mm. at the end of this sequence because you've seen the original and they then wrong foot you the directors are very self-consciously leading you up a garden path and then and then revealing that that's what they've done and then doing something more horrible or horrible in a different way. Mm-hmm. It still ends up going more or less in the same direction, but it's just... They are actually, I think, quite profound changes, which I don't want to specify. Yeah. I mean, I think, in a way, it's a very self-conscious sequel mm-hmm. um, in the way that it does this. It's almost as though this film is taking the original film and burying it, and something mm-hmm. comes back mm-hmm. that you can recognise, but it's different, which mm-hmm. is really what the <laughs> film is about. Yeah. In many ways, unlike Eleanor, I prefer this film Mm. to the original. I would have to stress again, I don't love the original, and I don't (laughs) love this either. I certainly liked this, but I do think it also has its problems, Mm. which are... Let's see. (laughs) Go ahead. Um, (laughs) The first is that although it's trying to escape the original, it's trying to do something that feels like a post-millennial film and not an 80s Mm. film, Mm -hmm. it just can't get away from its roots. Um, so there are various things in it that sort of aren't 80s and yet are completely 80s. Mm. Um, and I can say this, I think, without spoiling. Mm. The character of Victor Pascoe, um Victor Pasco, we should say, in the first film, is the first patient that Dr. Lewis Creed treats in his new job mm-hmm. in Maine. And the patient dies mm. um, from a very traumatic injury and then comes back as a ghost and tries in various ways to help the Creeds avoid trouble, but he tries in mm. vain. And... In this film, one might say rather voguishly, his race has been changed, Mm. his ethnicity has been changed, and Victor Pascal is now black. So you think, oh, well, that's very late, you know, 2010s. But he's also, in a very 80s way, literally the first to die. And it's the most 80s throwback thing that we <laughs> have. And it's very self-conscious, but it's kind of silly in a way that the film isn't silly. Yeah. And it doesn't really fit the tone. Which brings me to the, the second thing. And this is actually talking about something that's the end of the film, but not part of the film, if I can do that. Famously, uh, the original... Pet Sematary ends with a Ramones song called yeah. Pet Sematary, which mm-hmm. was written especially for the film because Lambert, through her, her music video work, knew the Ramones mm-hmm. and she asked them. She loved them. Mm-hmm. Stephen King also really loved the Ramones. <laughs> so she asked them to do a song and they did Pet Sematary, which I think their fans hated, but which oh, was I their love most song. successful. Yeah. Yeah. I think it is their most successful song <gasps> mm-hmm. in terms of where it got in the charts. Wow. And, you know, in the 80s, lots of films ended with kind of dumbass rock songs and that's just sort of what you did in the 80s. <laughs> yeah. If you have a film made now that is trying to present really serious, sombre emotions and Mm -hmm. grief and trauma, there's much more trauma in this Mm. film, I think, than there is in the first film, because we're told there are all kinds of hints that Dr Lewis Creed has come to Maine because of the trauma that he experienced in his last job. Mm -hmm. And it's also clear that his wife, Rachel, is much more traumatised by Zelda than she was in the original film. It's much more obvious Mm. because she's seeing her ghost before anything happens. Mm. Um, And they're both trying to escape trauma. And once you start dealing with themes like this in any kind of serious way you can't end with a cover version of that song because that song is inherently silly. I'm Mm. not saying it's a bad song, (laughs) but it's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Its lyrics are completely ridiculous. You know, I don't want to be buried in a pet cemetery. Mm -hmm. I mean,
2: it's... Um, well, even the notion of having a, a title theme song over the end credits. Yeah, yeah. it yeah. just and for me, that song
5: actually destroyed the tone of the film. I think it was a <laughs> real, I think it was a real misjudgment on the parts of the oh. filmmakers. Even though I do understand why they put it there, mm. right. in acknowledgement of the first film. But sometimes, you know, some things are better left buried. You know? <laughs> <There's> better left <laughs> dead. better.
2: Yeah, I suppose one thing I'd like to ask, and this is maybe as, as, a, as a reader of the book, Eleanor, they introduced this visual. Recurring visual motif of the the children in animal masks. It's there on the poster. Mm. It's not so much there in Mary Lambert's original. Is that completely fabricated? It's for this completely film? fabricated. Because I don't think they really explore that at all. So it just feels like something that maybe even the marketing teams said, it would be a good hook for a poster.
4: They're more present on the poster than in the film itself. Like even in the film, the new film, they talk about it for like a minute and then it never comes back again. And whenever they go bury a pet or anything in the cemetery, they don't put on masks or anything. And it just feels like, oh, you're trying to make it like a sort of, I don't know, Wicker Man cult thing. Like it's not scary. So why would you do that? In its defence, though, in narrative
5: terms, it's a much more economic way of telling us the story of what the Pet cemetery <laughs> is than in the original film, which is just Fred Gwynn telling us at length but for no him. obvious reason. And here it means that
4: John Livgold gets less stuff to do.
5: That's true. But I think it's a blessing that he's not just an expositor. Uh, but I, I think
4: the role of that character who's just here, hey, by the way, I live across the street. There's this weird Pet cemetery. Let me tell you everything about It's so important because then... I mean, in the original film, he starts feeling guilty for everything that happens because he thinks that by telling them, he made it happen. Yeah, and here, that's completely gone. So he's just like, why is this guy telling them to do this thing? He knows it doesn't end well. So it just feels completely absurd. And to me, it's just like it adds to the incoherence of the text. And you have John Levgau, who's an amazing actor, wasted on a character that makes no sense to me.
2: I don't particularly like either of these films, to be honest. Mm. And it all hinges on the fact I don't buy George Crandall's thought process and his logic in revealing the myth of the pet cemetery to these people. He has to be either a very sentimental or stupid person Mm. to do
5: it. I thought though this film does a much better job of that than the Mm. first film because in this film there are hints that there's something about the place that mm. makes people behave that way. Right. He has actually been to that cemetery mm. before and it therefore has an influence over him. And he does make reference to mm-hmm. this. And that's also what happens to Lewis. Yeah. Once Lewis has gone there once, he can't help going there again and again and again. And that's the and it is something about the place itself. The place becomes a kind of source of certain types of aberrant behaviour. And once you're caught in its kind of tractor beam, you can't really ever escape, even if it gets you decades later, as it does with Judd. Judd is doomed from the moment he's gone there.
2: Well, we've spent our night... In the pet cemetery, knowing to struggle <laughs> out of the dirt and and go back to our lives. Before we do, though, let's put some scores on this. This is in anticipation, enjoyment, in retrospect, as we do in the magazine. Eleanor, would you like to go first for this?
4: Um, anticipation. I would say four because I was I thought that as much as I love the original film, I think the ways to make it even more resonant and like because the novel is so rich. So I was looking forward to it and the cast. I also I want to go on the record as a huge Jason Clark fan, yes. even though I think he's. <laughs> quite miscast here I think it doesn't work and uh, so I was looking forward to it but then enjoyment I would say like three and then in retrospect two because I'm really
2: disappointed mm-hmm. Anthony, I know you don't like scores <laughs>
5: uh, I don't I'd, I'd say also four because I really love the filmmakers their previous film Starry Eyes course, which I think yeah. was their first film a fry Fest is. sort of
2: gem wasn't it um, yeah. yeah
5: sorry I should say the filmmakers are called Kevin Kirch and Dennis Widmeyer yeah. and um, I think they're real talent so I was really looking forward to this for the film the enjoyment of the film itself Oh boy, I'd say probably (laughs) four until the closing credits and then I would actually say two because I really found it very destructive of the film. And so if you're going to see the film, there's no coda. (laughs) You can walk out (laughs) as the credits start rolling and you will have a better time. Fuck your ears. But in retrospect, I would give this a four, but I'm going to... Do you mind if I qualify that slightly? Go ahead. (laughs) This film's greatest enemy has in fact been hype. It had its world premiere at South by Southwest, and reports immediately came back that this was the new face of horror, that this was going to change everything. It's an extraordinary film. People were terrified, and, you know, it did all mm-hmm. the things that a horror film should do. And this just isn't the kind of film that can withstand that kind of expectation, because <laughs> it's, it's a quite good, mid-level horror film. It's not really, I don't think, trying to be anything else. It's not particularly ambitious. No. Mm-hmm. And therefore... I'm going to say that for because the more I worked through its themes and thought through it, the more I liked it, especially the theme that isn't in the original, a theme of change and transformation and how that affects, in fact, the changes to the film at the end because the last third is very different from the last third of the original film. And um, butterfly motifs, all this stuff about change, which is... Runs throughout the film, and I liked I liked that as a new theme. But when I say four, don't think that that means this is a film that's worth getting all <laughs> hyperbolic about because it just isn't. It's four <laughs> for
2: what it is. And so, thank you. I was a victim of the hype, so yeah, in, in anticipation, probably a three uh, mediated by the fact I wasn't a fan of the original adaptation. What I wrote down. Before we start this conversation, was three two two. I didn't enjoy this very much, and I thought it was a silly movie, a silly adaptation. Mm-hmm. But as always, I su- I such enjoy talking about horror films with you two, and you always <laughs> enrich the enrich these films uh, through conversation. And maybe I will go and revisit this Sunday, Anton. Mm-hmm. But I'll take your tip and cut out the <laughs> anyway. That was Pet Cemetery in cinemas. This week. Let us know what you think if you do see it or if you rewatch the Mary Lambert original at LW Lies on Twitter, LW slash podcast or truth and movies at TCO London.com. Up next, The Sisters Brothers. Wow! Nice! Yeah! What you're hearing are the sounds of
3: people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness.
5: Bombas.
1: Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for
0: 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes.
2: Nice dress. Uh, It's a a t-shirt.
0: Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care.
2: John C. Riley and Joaquin Phoenix are a pair of infamous assassins in this adaptation of the novel by Patrick DeWitt from director Jacques Odiard, whose previous films include A Prophet and Rust and Bone. The sisters' brothers are on the trail of a gold prospector, played by Riz Ahmed, and his unlikely ally, a detective, played by Jake Gyllenhaal. Now, if only they could get along long enough to track down their bounty. Here's a clip. What is wrong with you? Remember
3: you know what happened last night? Yes. And? Yeah. You remember that you hit me? I hit you. I hit you. Stop pretending and spare me the. I don't remember routine. You hit me in public, Charlie. So as sure as you're looking at me right now, I'm leaving. No, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> All right. Wh- what do you want? This is about slapping each other in public. After so I slap you, you slap me back raven. Me. So go ahead, hit me, hit me. <laughs> Christ! What is your goddamn problem? I slapped you and walking the Hell with a shovel.
2: You do remember. A clip there from the sisters' brothers, John C. Riley and Joaquin Phoenix, as siblings. I saw this back in Venice, so please refresh my memory, Anton. What's the hook here? It's not. A, it's a bit of an unlikely Western, isn't it? It is a bit of an unlikely Western, not least because it's directed by a Frenchman. It's shot in
5: Spain, although, of course, there's a whole long tradition of spaghetti Westerns being shot in Spain. And although, like many Westerns, it's set in pretty much an all-male world, there are two very significant female characters, three very significant female characters, in fact, but they're all on the periphery of the film. The film is focused on these four men. In fact... To me, this is a film about the necessary feminization of mm-hmm. America. It's about four men who are slowly and in different ways finding their feminine side, and they need to if there's going to be any salvation for any of them.
2: Wow. Okay, that's a great way of putting um, it's it. It's all in the title.
5: <laughs> yeah, uh, <but> <laughs> um, you know, the title tells you this because you have these two brothers who are. The lowest of the low. They are hired killers. One of them, Charlie, who's played by Joachim Phoenix, Mm. has no compunction about what he does. He just takes orders from the Commodore, played Mm. by Rutger Hauer, does whatever he's told. The Commodore is this power player. And the Commodore is really a surrogate for his father. Uh, The Commodore is this grand patriarch in a criminal network of men. And all the men are scared of him and do what he says or else there are consequences for them, which is exactly the relationship that we learn Joachim had with his father before Mm -hmm. killing his father. (laughs) And we also know that he eventually is planning, his only plan really is to replace the Commodore and to become the Commodore. His brother does have compunctions about what he does. He doesn't like what they do. He knows that it's wrong. And his brother is tempted by such modernities of civilization as the toothbrush and the flush toilet, <laughs> things that he discovers along his journey and he finds he likes. And he really wants to get a day job. He wants to get a normal job and to quit this killing business. And he certainly doesn't want to torture, which is what they're going to about to have to do. Then you have these two other men, one of whom, or Riz character, whose surname is Warm, which I think is a very mm-hmm. feminized name. We first see him helping... Erect a building, so he is really a civilizer from the start, and he dreams of a kind of a utopian future where people will live together in brotherhood. And converted to his way is a man who is actually a scout who was sent to catch him so that the killers can kill him, played by Jake Gyllenhaal. But he is very quickly converted to Warm's vision, and in fact, John also has a past. He tells us, in fact, I might I might read out the line because it's such a good line. And talking about his father, he says. The opinions I thought I had of my own volition were in fact put there by my hatred for him, in other words, his father. Mm. So he becomes aware that all the bad things he does are to do with his childhood and the model of, that his father presented to him. And this is exactly the problem that all of these male characters have. Mm. And what they need to do, their mission, is to drift away from their father and to their mother. And that is what the film is about. <laughs> um, That's an
4: amazing I mean, summary. <laughs> that is
2: fantastic. Right in at the deep end, that... But then also, as as an experience just on, on almost the surface level of this film, it is a very warm, funny film. Mm. It's great that you were able to excavate the depth behind it because it does almost play on some of these new era, almost sight gags, seeing somebody out in the woods uh, setting up camp and then messing about with the toothbrush they've just got and the changing between the centuries and so on. It also hinges on what I think is one of the... You mentioned the fact there is Ahmed's character is called Warm one of the warmest male friendships I've seen in a film like this, certainly in a Western which so often covers cynicism and, mm. and looks at the cynicism behind the American dream this looks at almost an alternative to that mm. Eleanor do you respond to this stuff as um, well?
4: yeah totally I, I totally agree with uh, everything Anton said because that's just the film that's exactly <laughs> the film guys but also um, what I think is really interesting guys, as, as you describe it it's like this film that plays with all these symbols like most westerns I think most western genre is amazing because you can play with symbols very easily like oh the frontier literally civilization as a whole you know you can have a house in the middle of the desert it's not just a house it's a symbol of civilization Mm -hmm. and it all goes like that for pretty much everything in the western and that's why it's so amazing Uh, but also i think i was watching this film I, i kind of saw it on a sort of like from another level or another angle because i was really taken by the relationship to the two brothers as brothers like mm-hmm. not really as gangsters or even though that obviously that's their life that plays into it but uh, it's like a film of symbols but also it makes those symbols very real it's like they're real people like the John C. Reilly character he's such a touching person because he wants to do all these things he wants to get a wife get married have children have a normal life get out of the life of crime but he can't help helping his brother all mm. the time even though it means like he's pursued by you know other killers and involved in horrible things and he doesn't need to do this. He could have his whole li- own life if he wants to, but he just loves his brother and that's a tie, a, a bound that he can't break and he, he can't bring himself to break. And just seeing it from that perspective of like just um, almost like psychological re- realism Relationships between those characters—it was so moving to me to see, like, because um, um, I mean, I have a twin sister, and like, our relationship is not like this. Like, I mean, just make that clear. Uh, <laughs> but you know, sometimes you, you you do things, and because you think you have this sort of like responsibility to your sibling, and it's like a, a really strong relationship, strong tie between two people. But it's like sometimes it's like uh, you feel like you're not free from it. Sometimes it's liberating, but sometimes it's the best thing ever. It's like the best friend you've ever had. Sometimes it's something else. And I thought that this movie explored the complexities of this relationship so, so well. Even though they're not twins or anything, it's like, it was just so... And it made it exciting by being a Western, by being like, they might die. Like, Mm -hmm. literally, everything they do, it feels sometimes very light. Like, oh, yeah, they killed someone, oh, they'll just run around. It's very funny and very quick, and it goes from, like, places to places very fast. It's like a comedy. You don't really feel like the weight of death is that much. But that's what it's about, as you said, Anton. Eventually, they have to realize. And so I was just, like, really admiring the way that this movie deals with the very normal like everyday everyone can relate to this or like relationship between two people who love each other but not they have to like try to find some sort of independence or try to make it work and i, I was just like really it was so beautiful to me i really didn't expect that if it was going to be another western where the closest people can be is like a friendship between men where they just you know constantly like wrestle with each other or stuff like that or like you know tap each other on the shoulder this mm-hmm. isn't their relationship their relationship is like so much stronger and more intimate in a way than this and yeah.
5: And they are really good actors. And I they mean are it's so um, good. It is a master class yeah. in acting this film.
2: Yeah. I mean yeah, in terms of all four of those yeah. those performers are just at the top of their game. And there's some actors there who you've not seen like this before. John C. Riley has more sort of broader comic performances or Oscar Awards bait performances like In Stan and Oli. Raken Phoenix is incredible in films like you never really hear, but you've never seen him have this vulnerability in humanity. Mm. Um Jake Gyllenhaal Hall and Riz Ahmed. Riz Ahmed in particular, who, oh who, my God. I mean, they were together in Nightcrawler. This is a very mm. different film to have them side by side in. Unfortunately, this film was something of a box office bomb yeah. um, in the States. It's a hard film to market. It's a hard film to talk about. Although, Anton, <laughs> you talked about it very well. <laughs> All we can really do is try and recommend it if we I, if we saw gonna I'm gonna it. I'm going to see it again because exactly. I've only seen it a few months ago and it was so wonderful. going to put you through the scores again, Anton. What would you give this? Oh, boy. I'm going to say four, four, four. Yeah, i mm. Yeah,
4: I'm, I'm going to say... Maybe four, five, four, wow. almost five. Because I thought it was, it's such a well-made film. It's so mm-hmm. perfect. It's like tied with a nice bow. It's like it's, it's, everything's been thought through right. so well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was almost going to say they don't make them like this anymore. But like, it's <laughs> so, especially I think even from Jacques Audiard, who I think is an amazing filmmaker. I mean, he's he makes films like really well. He, can know, he knows how to make movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but even from him, like watching this sort of like genre film, that's just so well thought through and the story is so... It's so rich. It's like you, you go to the cinema, you expect like, oh, Jacques-Odia western, like, whatever. And then you get something so much richer and warm. And he he's not really especially making very warm films usually, mm-hmm. I think. I mean, sometimes quite cheesy and weird, you know, like Rust and Bone, whatever. But this isn't at all like Rust and Bone. This is very sincere and heartfelt but in in a genuine way and it's Mm -hmm. great it's wonderful and looks amazing as well
2: it does I wasn't a fan of uh, his previous film Rust and Bone I thought it was quite manipulative Um, Uh, but uh, yeah I was really impressed by this the scores I put down would be three four four but I really can't wait to rewatch this after seeing it back in August Mm. I can't wait but this sounds like a resounding recommendation for the sisters brothers from the round table here go and see it and to finish, a special treat, an interview clip with director Chris Butler, a director of Missing Link, animator at Leica Studios, the... Stop Motion Titans, who've made five films in ten years, ranging from the chilling children's horror Coraline to the sweeping adventure Kuo and the Two Strings. Missing Link is more of a globe-trotting buddy comedy, pairing up a gentleman adventurer with a Sasquatch who just wants to find his own place in the world. You can find out more about the film on ldrealize.com, where there's a review from our own Adam Woodward. But for now, let's hear from Chris Butler, who started at Leica 13 years ago as a storyboard artist and hasn't left since. I asked him what the studio's founding principle were and how they've evolved over the years. The fact
3: of it is, I am an animation fan. I love animation in all its forms. And I think that there is room for it all. I don't think that we all need to ape each other. And I think Travis Knight is of that principle too. I think he embraces the fact that we did something truly original with Coraline. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to continue that. He didn't want to repeat himself. He didn't want to make five more Coralines. He wanted each movie to have its own unique story to tell and its own aesthetic. And I think if anything has become the brand of Leica, that's probably it, is that we are trying to do something new and fresh each time. Mm
2: It's the ident that comes up at the very end of the film, where it has like a little flash of every film, which is actually really exciting, seeing all of those different worlds side by side for a second.
3: Yeah, when we did the one for Missing Link, I I wasn't even thinking about that. And then we add something to the end, and it's like, oh wow, if we keep on doing this, the ident at the end is going to be 10 minutes long.
2: (laughs) Missing Link, of course, has evolution as one of its key themes, both this sort of missing link in the evolutionary chain, but then also personal growth. Yes. And I wonder how, as a filmmaker, starting as a storyboard artist and working way up to head of story and director and so on, but then also as a studio, how has a changed in that time? You say each film needs to be yeah. growing on from the next.
3: The easiest change to note, I think, is that each movie has got more ambitious and I think actually that's become part of the DNA of the studio as well. I know every time we do one of these things, we tell people this is the most ambitious thing we've done. And it's not hyperbole. It's the truth. That every time we do it, we are pushing the boundaries. And it, it's almost become like when we start making one of these things, it's like, how can we push this one? What can we do on this one that's innovative? So in that sense, you know, a, a movie like Missing Link, there is no way we could have made this movie at Leica 10 years ago mm. our technical skills have become way more sophisticated and it's also the same group of people uh, mostly a lot of the same people so we're learning and the things that we're learning on the on the previous movie we we carry into the next one and we're all getting older I suppose that's some kind of evolution. And the kinds of stories that we're telling are evolving as well.
2: Chris Butler there, talking about stop-motion animation studio Laika and his film Missing Link, which is out this week. Read Adam's review on illogalized.com. I suppose that just leaves us to look ahead to next week, where it's something of a coming-of-age special. We have Mid-90s, the directorial debut of Jonah Hill. We have Wild Rose, the Scottish-based country music drama starring Jesse Buckley. And then for Film Club we have Kids, directed by Larry Clark. The link there is the mid-90s is very indebted to Kids and also has a cameo from the writer of Kids, Harmony Corrine. Very much Kids and Skateboards, going through tricky adolescence. Let us know what you think of the usual channels. Anton, Eleanor, thank you both for coming in and offering your horror expertise and really nailing Pet Cemetery. I'm Macalida, and as always, this has been a 7 Digital Production.